From our perspective, it can seem like God is part artist, part magician. It's magnificent the way he takes the people society wouldn't choose, the places no one would ever go, even the schemes of the enemy that are against his purposes and forms them all into a beautiful work of art. God is building his church and reaching the world with his love. But what's more impressive than that is he's doing it through us, broken humanity. How is that even possible? When Jesus left, God sent his spirit to dwell inside us, to lead and to empower us. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us into situations that seem normal and natural. Sometimes his miraculous work is much more apparent. But it's all supernatural. In the book of Acts, we see the gospel spread through men and women following the guidance and working in the strength of God's Holy Spirit. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. This is the book of Acts. All right, well, good morning, Mosaic. My name is Phil, and I serve as the executive pastor here at Mosaic Church. And many of you know that I'm uh, relatively new here. My wife and my kids and my family, we all, we all moved down here in July from upstate New York. And uh, you might have heard that story uh, last month when I shared some of that here uh, over the weekend. And um, it's been great as we've been getting to know the church and uh, getting to know uh, the staff and getting to know the, the area, getting to know the culture. It's been a lot of fun just kind of digging into what it means to, to live here in Central Florida. And it's funny because, you know, s- some things are, are really pretty much the same and, and some things are, are completely different. But, you know, some of those things that are the same, like you walk into, say, a, I don't know, a Target store and, you know, everything is pretty much laid out in the same way, right? You kind of know, even if you've never been in that store before, it's the same as it was back in New York. It's not a whole lot different. Or you, you walk into a mall and and you know that somewhere in that mall there's going to be a Gap store, and they're going to sell the same jeans that they sold in the Gap store in New York. That hasn't really changed at all. And you know that somewhere in, in the midst of a bunch of stores in that road where all the stores are, there's going to be a Panera Bread, which is good for me because I tend to do a lot of my sermon preparation at Panera Bread. It's sort of I get in there, I get the headphones in, I get into the zone, and, and, and everything's pretty much the same when I go there, right? The menu's the same, the, the coffee tastes the same, the tables and chairs are the same. I learned this week, however, in preparing for today's teaching, that there is one key difference between the Panera Bread that I uh, frequented in New York and the Panera Bread that I go to here in Florida. Um, when you spend a few hours at Panera and you're, um, you know, you're, you're drinking several cups of coffee, um, there's a place in the restaurant that you visit several times. And uh, what I learned is that in New York, the men's bathroom was on the right. But here in Florida, it's on the left. And, uh, you know, when it's, when it's kind of early and you've only had two cups of coffee, you, you're not really paying attention to these things. <laughs> so I learned that one the hard way this week. Uh, I was really confused as to why there were two stalls in there. I just didn't understand. There's no stand-up thing. I don't get it. Thankfully, there was no one in there, and I was able to sneak out and nobody saw me. So the secret is safe. You guys just keep it, uh, keep it here. It's in the family. All right. Very good. Uh, this has literally nothing to do with my sermon today. Absolutely nothing. All right, very good. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's open in prayer, and then we're going to jump into the book of Acts today. Father God, thank you so much for a chance to study your word. God, I pray that we would come to your word with open hearts, with submissive spirits, ready to uh, just learn and be challenged by you. 
God, we know that when you, when you call together believers in your name, that your spirit is here with us and that we need to be ready to be open to whatever it is you desire to do through us and in us. Change our hearts, change our attitudes, change our minds. God, we love you and we pray that all of this would be done to your honor and to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we've been in the book of Acts since early this year, and we've watched as a, a random group of people who, who kind of seem like they all come from the island of misfit toys, get, get called together, and they become the early church. And then we saw uh, that early church empowered for mission as the Holy Spirit was, was given to them in a few different places and in a few different ways. And we saw that, that God did not call them together and then, and then give them his spirit just so that they could have some great friendships and have a place to call home. But that, that's a part of it. But if we stop there, then we've missed the most important part of the gathering, which is the scattering. And so we see that scattering begin to happen in the early church as the church grows into a, a full-fledged movement. And then we saw God begin to expand his leadership team for the church as uh, the Apostle Paul, who was also called Saul, is converted to Christianity and becomes a follower of Christ. And, and Jesus essentially knocks him on the ground, knocks him out blind. And then you hear this, this booming God voice from heaven. It's like the end of the Truman Show. And Saul is like, what's going on? He doesn't, you know, he's, what is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's, uh, it's, it's confusing. And, and then Saul finds himself being led like a blind man to Damascus. And the Lord tells another Christ follower, Ananias, to go to Saul. And Ananias is a little bit unsure of this because Saul is that guy who, who was the murderer of Christians. He was the persecutor of Christians. He was the one who was seeking to devour the church. And so uh, Ananias is rightly a little bit afraid of this and says, are you, are you sure, Lord? Are you sure that this is the right plan? Because I mean, there's probably some other people who might be more open to this or, or better at this. And, and and Jesus says, no, no, I've got a plan. Go and do this. It's, it's going to be great. I'm going to do great things through this guy. And so when Ananias comes to Saul, he says to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so God is going to give him back his, his physical eyes, but he's also going to give him this new spiritual eyes to see through. He's going to give him the Holy Spirit. So Ananias goes to Saul and says, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the scales fall off from his eyes. And at that same moment, he receives the Holy Spirit. And you have to wonder, in that moment, as Saul regained his, his sight, his, his physical vision, and this new, this new empowering of the Holy Spirit, you have to wonder what the light looked like at that moment for Saul. As he, as he gets this one-two punch of physical vision and spiritual vision all at once. So he gets baptized, gets up, gets baptized, and he goes on his way. And that's where we pick it up here today in verse 19b of chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are Bibles in front of you and uh, just underneath the chairs. And you can um, uh, find Acts 9 in there. If you don't own a Bible, please keep this as a gift from us. We, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. So take a look at Acts 9, starting in verse 19b. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, 
Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And if you remember last week in the passage we looked at, Ananias was hesitant about going to Saul, and, and what, did, what did Jesus say to him? I have major plans for Saul, so this is why it's worth it for you to risk your life. And then here we come to this passage, and, and right out of the gate, verse 20, it says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. The key word there is immediately. He, he, he didn't waste any time. Did he understand every nuance of truth? Did, did he... Did he get all of the details of doctrine? No, probably not. Did he still have some questions? Of course. Was he still reeling from this new reality, this new and massive life change that had just taken place for him? Probably. But this much he knew. He had met Jesus, and Jesus gave him a new set of eyes and the Spirit. Jesus had called him to a new purpose, and he had to act on that calling. And he couldn't wait, even if he didn't know all the stuff. And isn't it, isn't it often the case that when, when a person meets Jesus for the first time, they, they can't help but, but go to the people that, that know them best and, and tell them this great news? This is probably a story that, that some of you could tell. You, you met Jesus and you went home and you, you told your spouse and you told your kids and you told your parents and you told your roommates and you told your best friends. You didn't know how to answer all their questions, but you knew one thing. You knew that you had tasted grace. You knew that you had experienced forgiveness. That You knew that you were sensing a joy that you couldn't explain, but you just had to share. You had to share it with others. You had to tell others about it. And so immediately, Saul starts to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. And where does he do it? He does it in the synagogues. He does it with the people that he knows best. He does it with his own people. He went to the culture he knew best. And all of a sudden, the guy who, who was responsible for the murder of Jesus' followers, the guy who was committed to destroying the church, the guy who was Christianity's number one enemy is suddenly going into the synagogues and he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And notice that it doesn't say synagogue, singular. It says synagogues, plural. That's important. Imagine everyone there goes into his first synagogue to teach, and, and the people are excited, right? And, and they're thinking, hey, we've got Saul as our guest teacher. I mean, this is going to be pretty amazing, right? We've got this guy who is, is well-known throughout the Jewish faith as somebody who is a, a defender of the faith, somebody who is, is rooting out uh, those who are are seeming to go against orthodoxy of, of the Jewish faith. He's rooting them out and he's killing them. He's persecuting them. He's bringing them to justice. We've got this guy as our guest teacher today. It's going to be great. And what does he do instead? He tells them all about the most important thing that has ever happened to him. He says, guys, Jesus knocked me out blind. I, I, was, I was so distraught. I was so out of it. I couldn't even eat. I was led to Damascus as a blind man. And then this guy Ananias came and, 
and healed me and he, and he imparted the Spirit to me. And that same Spirit that the prophets and kings of old had at times, but not all the time, I've got access to him all the time. He says, guys, I was wrong. Guys, I was wrong. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And how do the Jews in the synagogue respond? It says, all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Isn't this the guy who was the Christian's number one enemy? Now he's their biggest fan? This doesn't make sense. What's going on here? They must have been angry. They, they must have been thinking, even in that first synagogue, Saul has gone nuts. We, we've got to take him out. We've got to take him out. And how does Saul respond? He goes to the next synagogue, and the next synagogue, and the next synagogue. And even though uh, there is a, a, certainly a, a threat of, of punishment and death even there, he keeps on going to each synagogue. By some accounts, there were as many as 50 synagogues in Damascus. Some would have been fairly small. Some would have been fairly large. He didn't go to just one synagogue and stop, knowing that he might get lynched at the next one. He kept on going. He kept on preaching boldly. He went to synagogues, plural. And so even as word spread, Saul continued to take opportunities to preach the gospel of Jesus to his people. Verse 22 tells us that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he keeps on teaching in the synagogues. And it's, it's unclear as to why they would keep letting him do so, right? I mean, it, word must have spread around. Were they, were they just, did they just have such respect for Saul because of his his place within the Jewish faith, that they, they didn't know how to tell him no, like they felt like maybe that's not our place to tell him to stop. That could be. Maybe it was fear. I mean, remember, this is the guy who, who doles out justice by way of persecution and murder. So maybe they thought, look, e- even if Saul has switched teams, um, I, you know, I'm just not sure if I want to get on his bad side, right? I mean, I don't know that I want to tell him to stop because who knows? Maybe he'll use the same practices against us. Maybe it's like, uh, it's like you can imagine Tony Soprano or, or the Godfather joins the local chamber of commerce, right? You might be hesitant to uh, argue with them about the legitimacy of their business practices. You, you might be hesitant to do that, right? So, so perhaps they were fearful. So Saul kept on teaching, and the Jews he was teaching really had, had no response. They were confounded because Saul was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Well, what, is that, what does that kind of proof look like in a Jewish context? What, is it, what does it look like for Saul to prove in a Jewish context that Jesus was the Christ? Well, it's probably going to look like a lot of references to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Remember, Saul was, was not some dumb, murderous thug. Uh, he was a, a well-educated guy. He had studied under a guy named Gamaliel, who was a well-known teacher of the day. And so you can imagine Saul walking into the synagogues and going over to the shelves where they keep the scrolls of Scripture and pulling down the, the scrolls and, and spreading them out on a, on a table and getting a bunch of them all spread out and saying, guys, look, look at this. Look at this. Genesis. 
tells us that the Messiah would be born of a woman. Micah tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah tells us he'd be born of a virgin. Genesis tells us that he would come from the line of Abraham and be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob and and stand in the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel tells us that he would stand in the line of King David. Isaiah tells us he would be crucified next to criminals. The Psalms tell us that he would be rejected by his own people and declared the Son of God and given vinegar to drink while he was dying. Zechariah tells us that he would have hands, his hands and feet would have nails driven through them. But then Exodus tells us that even in that, not a bone of his body would be broken. Isaiah tells us that he would be buried with the rich. But the Psalms tell us that he would rise again from the dead, ascend to heaven, and sit at the right hand of God. And Isaiah tells us that he would do all of this for the forgiveness of our sins. That he would become the perfect, spotless sacrifice for the sins of mankind. You can imagine Saul sharing all of this, proving that Jesus is the Son of God and saying, guys, I'm not making this up. Brothers, I want you to see the truth. It's right here in our scriptures. The words that we consider the Word of God point to Jesus. Do you see it? And they had no idea what to do with him. They were confounded. They were amazed. No wonder why they kept letting him teach. They didn't know how to shut him up. Some of them believed. Some of them were mad. Well, eventually the Jews got their act together. And they said, look, we've we got to take this guy down. There's just no two ways about it. We've got to take this guy down. Verse 23 says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, back in verse 19, uh, we were told that uh, the disciples were, he was with the disciples for many days in Damascus. And then verse 23 says, many days had passed. So, so a lot of time has, has gone by here, right? During the time that Saul went from being a, a persecutor to the persecuted, a, a lot of time has passed. And, and finally, his teaching is catching up with him. And the Jews are working out some plan to kill him before he does even more damage. So the Jews were plotting to kill him. Verse 24 says, But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, before we move on from this point, I want to just call attention to uh, something that you might have missed. It says, his disciples. Saul had disciples in Damascus. So Saul has not only been growing in his faith, he's, he's not only been preaching in the synagogues, he's also developed a following. He's been there long enough to actually develop a, a following of people who are learning from him about Jesus. And the reason why that's important for us is that it marks how, how much time he's been there. In fact, if you look elsewhere in Galatians, you'll see that he was there for, for three years. And here's why that's important for us. It can look like, if you are just looking in at uh, the book of Acts and looking in at chapter 9, it can look and feel like one minute Saul is persecuting Christians, the next minute he's a Christ follower, the next minute he's in Damascus, he's got the Spirit, the next minute he's uh, being evacuated out to Jerusalem, the next minute he's preaching there, and this is just all very, very quick and and happens just in in a short period of time. And that can be defeating 
if you are following Christ and feeling like, man, I mean, I've been doing this for a few years and Saul just seems to come to Christ and he gets it all really quickly. But that's not what happened. Chapter 9 doesn't represent a few weeks in Saul's life. It represents a few years in Saul's life. And so if you're that believer who is struggling to understand it all, feeling like you're not making progress, remember, don't compare yourself to Saul. Yes, Saul had a unique conversion experience. I think we can all admit to that. Yes, Saul had a pre-existing knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, and so in that sense, he kind of starts with a leg up because he already understands the Old Testament. And yes, Saul had a unique calling in our church history, but at the end of the day, you cannot microwave spirituality, right? You can't just speed this up. You you can't fast-track a track record with Jesus. You, You can't go from killer of Christians to leader of Christians overnight. And if we make that mistake in thinking that Acts chapter 9 is is just a short period of time, well, that can be defeating. It can be discouraging for us. And I want to encourage you that as as you recognize that Saul spent years growing in, in his faith, you too, me too, we all need years of growing in our faith. We never reach a point where we say, okay, we, we've got it all now, but we're, we're pretty much done. We just coast, play some golf for the next 30 years. That's not what happens. One of the things I, I love to do is to come alongside of a, a person who is brand new in the faith, who's just come to Christ, and, and you look at them and they're just, you know, they're bumbling and they're kind of stumbling around in their faith and they're, they're misquoting Scripture and they're, they're praying wrong and, and they, 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 they say offensive things and, and you know, there's, there's still a lot of sin in their life and, and you, you see this and, and, and it's just a mess. It's just messy. And, and then you, you come alongside of them and you see them grow over a couple of years' time and you see that as, as things change, as the Spirit gets a hold of their heart, changes begin to happen. But at some point with this believer, a conversation will happen with someone where they will say, I just feel like I'm not growing. I just feel like I'm not making any progress in my faith. I feel like I'm not understanding the Bible any better than I did when I first came to Christ two years ago, five years ago, whatever it might be. And you're able to look in and say, okay, I know you don't see it, but you know, I don't, I don't ever remember a day where I remember seeing the, the trees in my backyard grow. But I can look in at your life and I can see that, that you have a, a sweetness of your spirit that didn't exist before because the Spirit of God is, is, is taking off the, the hard edges of your heart and soul. And I can see as, as you have a love for people that you didn't have before because you're experiencing the love of Jesus Christ. And I can see as, as God's Word is softening who you are and making you somebody who, who loves truth and loves the God of truth. And I can see it, but you can't, because I'm looking at it from the outside, and, and you're just experiencing it on a day-to-day basis. And so you can't see it, you can't feel it, but you're growing. And so, in the same way that Saul had years of growing here in Damascus, we will always need years. We cannot microwave our maturity in Jesus. All right, let's move on here with Saul. So Saul is uh, being sought after by the Jews in Damascus because he's become a very convincing teacher of the way of Christianity. And so he escapes with the help of his disciples, his students. They help him through a hole in the walls of the city 
in a basket that's kind of been turned into an elevator. He escapes out. Verse 26 of chapter 9 says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. Remember, in this day, there's no internet. There's no cell phones, texting, right? None of that. No chat rooms. Do people use chat rooms still? I don't think they do. There's none of that, right? It's just, you know, it's, it's, you've got to walk the message there. And, and even, if, even if they had heard some rumors that Saul had become a Christ follower, they would have good reason to doubt it. They would have good reason to say, yeah, I think I'll wait to see if that one's actually true. Uh, they would have good reason to question whether or not the murderer of Christians hadn't just cooked up some new plan to get in with the believers in Damascus and root out the churches there and then, and then bring, them to, uh, bring them to punishment for their belief. And so he shows up at the, the church in Jerusalem and, and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm one of you now. And they're like, no, I don't think so. No, seriously, I brought my Bible. No, you brought a gun. We don't trust you. People are ducking behind the furniture. It's just, you know, they're afraid. So what does Saul need in that context? Well, Saul needs, Saul needs a character reference. He needs, a, he needs someone who can vouch for him. Someone who can vouch for his conversion to Jesus. Someone who can say, it's okay. He's telling the truth. He's one of us now. So enter Barnabas. Take a look at verse 27. <clears throat> but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, what do we know about Barnabas from elsewhere in Scripture? Well, we know that his nickname is the son of encouragement. Barnabas is this guy who, who he plays this role of, of being the, the bridge builder. He plays this role of being the, the guy that everyone loves and everyone trusts. He's the level-headed guy that if Barnabas says, you know, you can, you can trust Saul, he's okay, you're, you're going you're gonna to believe him. And God uses Barnabas to legitimize Saul's ministry in, in Jerusalem. And so one of the great little side stories of Acts chapter 9 is the role of the Christian community in Saul's life. God uses Ananias to, to heal Saul and bring the Holy Spirit to him. So he uses a Christ follower to do that. In Damascus, his students, his community, they help him to escape to Jerusalem. He, he gets to Jerusalem and it's, it's Barnabas, another Christ follower, who, who vouches for Saul's story and creates a pathway for him to continue preaching. And later in this section, we'll see that the church helps Saul escape yet another difficult situation. Here in America, we, we often emphasize the individual experience and minimize the role of the community. We do it in many aspects of our lives, and we even do it in the church. And in Saul's day, and in the early church, that would not have been the case. Saul could have come to Jesus all alone on the roads of Damascus, but the only way for him to, to remain in Jesus, to abide in Jesus is to do so in the context of the Christian community. Nowhere in Scripture will you find the concept of the individual follower of Christ doing his or her own thing completely and totally separated from the body of believers for any length of time. When Christ called 
us to himself, he also called us to community. And that happens here on Sunday. It happens in your missional communities, your small groups. It happens in, in meaningful relationships with other Christ followers. But the one place it doesn't happen, the one place it's really hard to have community is when it's just you all by yourself trying to do your own thing. It's easy to think that we could sneak into a service here at Mosaic and we're big enough where this could happen, where you could kind of sneak in, kind of have, you've got your coffee, you've got your donut, you sing some songs, you hear some teaching and you sneak back out and you could feel like you're a part of a church community. It can kind of feel like you are. But if you're not really in, engaging with anyone in, in true community, if you're not really being honest and open and vulnerable with anyone, then all you've really done is, is taken part in a service, in a gathering. You, you've, you've come and watched. You've been, you've been a spectator. You haven't been a participant. So I want to encourage us to take that step of, of honesty and openness and vulnerability. If you're not already in community beyond just our gathering here on Sunday, to take that step, join a missional community, get plugged into some deep friendships with other followers of Christ who will hold you accountable and, and do life with you and, and be in the midst of your own sinful struggles and, and your own challenges and the challenges that life just brings us because we live in a fallen world. We need others in our lives, others who, who are tracking with Jesus. We need that. Paul had that. Saul had that. He had that gospel-centered community. And as a result of that community, verse 28 tells us that, that he went in and he went out among them in Jerusalem. They trusted him. He had freedom to come and go as he pleased. They no longer flinched every time they saw Saul enter into a room. The former persecutor of Christians, the former murderer of Christians, had become their brother. He went in and out among them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And verse 29 tells us that he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Let's talk about these Hellenists for a little bit. <clears throat> this is an interesting group of people. So Paul, remember, he is a Jew. Specifically, he's a Pharisee. He'll, he'll say that I'm a, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Um, and so here he's there, but he's also a citizen of Rome. So he kind of walks this interesting line. He's got this, this Jewishness and this Romanness, this Greekness. And so he's, he's got this connection to the Jews and to the Greeks. Then who are the Hellenists? Well, the Hellenists, they're a, a sect of Judaism that takes Jewish tradition and combines it with Greek culture. In fact, it was the Hellenists who took the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and translated it into Greek, the language of the day, and translated it so that others could read it in their own language. So we kind of have to like the Hellenists in a, little, in a little bit ways, right? I mean, this is a group of people that, that desired to allow people to read the Scriptures in their own language. I have to respect a group like that. And the early church actually owes the Hellenists a, a big debt of gratitude for doing that for them. For, for taking the Old Testament scriptures and, and creating the, the Septuagint, the, the Greek, the Koine Greek Bible of the Old Testament. Now, 
Can you imagine a group of people that Paul is more suited to bring the gospel to? A group that is both Jewish and Greek. Saul is uniquely situated to bridge that gap for them and to speak their cultural language. And so Saul preaches boldly with them. And just like he did in the synagogues in Damascus, he preaches boldly with them. And it's interesting because within about a hundred years from when Saul preaches to the Hellenists, historical records show us that the Hellenists cease to exist. They just, they just fall off the map. There's no more records of them uh, existing as a kind of a subset of Judaism. And the historians will speculate that while, while the Hellenists initially rejected Saul's teaching, Eventually, they so fully accepted the claims of Christianity that as a subset of Judaism, they just ceased to exist. It'd be like a denomination just ceasing to exist, which um, in some cases is not a bad thing. But these guys just cease to exist. And regardless of what happens in that hundred years after Paul preaches to them, after Saul preaches to them, one thing we do know is that in that initial moment, they didn't like it. They didn't like it. So Saul is once again um, under the gun, literally and figuratively, and they want to kill him. Poor Saul. Everywhere he goes, people want him dead. I mean, this has got to do something to your ego after a while. So verse 30 tells us, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. And the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So Saul's presence at this time in history for the church was actually more of a liability than a help, which is weird to think about, right? Because this is the guy who becomes the Apostle Paul. This is the guy who writes a good chunk of our New Testament. This is the guy who who we look to and say, of all the people who have spoken into the church in our 2,000 years of history, Saul, who is later known as Paul, is is without a doubt one of the most important voices we have. And yet, at this moment in church history, it was better for him to be gone. It was better for him not to be around. It was causing the church to be distracted from their gospel mission. As they seek to protect Saul, they're not actually getting to do what what God has called them to. And so they sent him off to Tarsus, where he had come from. And the church in this whole region, experiences peace and growth. Well, that never feels good, right? You leave and everyone's peaceful. That's, you know, that's not a good place to be. But that's what happened. And at the very end of this passage, we sort of get a prologue type of statement on how, in fact, the church grew after Saul left. And I love this verse. Look at at verse 31. See how it summarizes everything so well for us. It says, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. So how did the church grow? The fear of the Lord and the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. As we walk humbly and carefully in the fear of the Lord, as we we rest in the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit, that is where true gospel transformation happens. This verse sums up so much of the story. And that phrase, fear of the Lord, to walk in the fear of the Lord, is one that you'll, you'll find in plenty of places throughout Scripture, but the place you find it most often is in Proverbs. 
14 times actually in Proverbs. In fact, it's in Proverbs that we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of, of knowledge. It also tells us that, that the fear of the Lord is a, a, a fountain of life. It actually, it actually prolongs life and it, it leads to life. The fear of the Lord is also said in Proverbs to cause us to hate evil. It actually keeps us away from sin. But perhaps the most appropriate for our current passage of Scripture here, offshoot of the fear of the Lord, is that it inspires strong confidence. Strong confidence. It's funny to think of fear causing confidence. But of course, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, uh, we don't mean like a, like a cowering in terror kind of fear. That's, that's not what we mean. It's a, it's a fear that is born out of uh, deep trust and deep respect and awe that inspires us to want to obey the Lord. It inspires us to want to please the Lord. And our connection to the almighty, all-powerful God through Jesus gives us strong confidence. Think back to Ananias being asked to go to Saul, the murderer. Where did he get the mental fortitude to do that? He walked in the fear of the Lord, and he took comfort in the Holy Spirit. When Saul started preaching in the synagogues and and later with the Hellenists, he must have known he was putting his own life at risk. Where did he find the courage to do that? Where did he find the courage to preach boldly? He was developing a fear of the Lord, and he was taking comfort and courage in the Holy Spirit. When Saul's disciples helped him to escape Jerusalem or, or Damascus, they must have known that, that they, if they got caught, they would be implicated along with Saul. They must have had some fear over that, but instead they were walking in the fear of the Lord, and they'd experienced the Spirit's power, and so they took a risk for the gospel. When Barnabas stood up for Saul and said, it's okay, we can trust him, he must have known that he was putting his own reputation on the line as the guy who was there to bridge the, bridge the gaps. But he walked in the fear of the Lord, and he found strength in the Spirit. And so he did. He went and put his own name on the line. Saul finds himself on the run from the law again and again. And again and again, he has to walk in the fear of the Lord and find comfort in the Spirit. The church, as it grew and grew and spread out further and further and further, is walking, doing so in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. See, we can find our strength in, in all sorts of places. We can seek comfort in so many places. We can work so hard and so diligently in our own strength instead of in the Spirit's strength. We, we strive as people pleasers in fear of mankind instead of walking in the fear of the Lord who loves us dearly. We we look to our relationships for comfort instead of the Spirit's comfort. We fearfully find our identity in all sorts of places, like our jobs and our families and, and even our hobbies, instead of finding our confidence and our comfort in those things that we can't control, meaning the depths of our God, meaning the depths of Jesus. Do you see how Ananias and Barnabas, and Saul, 
and the disciples in Damascus and the believers in Jerusalem and the early church. Do you see how they walked in the fear of the Lord? See how they found their confidence in the Lord, found their strength in the Lord and their comfort in the Holy Spirit? See how their faith paved a way for the spread of the gospel, paved a way for the expansion of the church, paved a way for the church to multiply? To see how even that faith was not really about them, but it was about bringing glory to God as the glory of God is reflected in the bride of Christ and the expansion of God's kingdom, the expansion of of the church, the spread of the gospel through that church. Ultimately, it wasn't about them at all. The story of the early church is a story of regular people, ordinary people, walking in the fear of the Lord and finding comfort in the Holy Spirit. The story of the early church is a story of humble submissiveness. It's a simplicity of purpose. It's a story of a movement being born out of awe and reverence and a holy fear of our Creator God. May we never lose sight of where we stand in God's plan on this earth. And may we see it as a call to action as God calls us into mission in our communities. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the witness that we read in this chapter of Acts. We thank you for the life of Saul. And we thank you for the way that his life teaches us what it looks like to step out in faith and to speak boldly in places where we may be uncomfortable. To find our strength not in our own will, not in our own abilities, not in the gifts that we think we've honed all on our own, but instead to find our strength and our purpose in you. God, teach us to walk humbly in your paths. Teach us what it means to have a healthy and holy fear, awe of you. Teach us what it means to walk in that. Teach us what it means to find our comfort in your Holy Spirit rather than in so many distractions that crowd us in every single day. God, I pray that we would do these things to your honor and to your glory. And we ask these things in the name of your Son and in the power of your Spirit. Amen. Let's continue worshiping.